Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Associate Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the Editor-in-Chief of War Room. I'm so glad you've joined us for today's episode. Today we're going to explore an important but perhaps sobering topic, and it's one that matters to uniformed service members, veterans, citizens, and the families and loved ones of those who have served and those who have died in service to their country. And that question or that topic today is how do states, and in this case we're going to think about the United States, memorialize war, and especially how do they commemorate and honor those who have died in war? So if we think about military cemeteries, uh, you know, Arlington National Cemetery just outside of Washington, D.C., or the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific at Punchbowl Crater outside of Honolulu, Hawaii, or the Normandy American Cemetery in Colville-sur-Mer in France. And these are iconic you know, reminders of the staggering human costs of war. And so here to help us think through and understand the significance of these sites of memorialization, history, and identity, I'm really happy to have in the virtual studio today, Dr. Kate Clark LeMay, who is Acting Senior Historian at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Kate holds a Ph.D. in Art History and American Studies from Indiana University and specializes in the intersections of art, memorialization, and military and diplomatic history. She is the author of the book Triumph of the Dead, American World War II Cemeteries, Monuments, and Diplomacy in France, which is published by the University of Alabama Press in 2018. And the book explores the relationship between art, architecture, war, memory, and Franco-American relations. It's also one of the most beautiful academic books I've ever seen. Uh, So I highly, highly encourage uh, you to check it out. Her research honors include an IIE Fulbright research grant and two grants from the Terra Foundation and American Art. And right now at work, she's currently working on a new exhibit on the international history of the wars of 1898. And I'm really excited to see what that turns out to be. So, Kate, welcome to War Room. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jackie. All right. So let's start with a really broad question, uh, which is often where we start, which is why are military cemeteries uh, important sites for scholars of war, the military and society to even think about or to understand? That's a good question. Um, And I like to start broad, too. I like to think of the war cemeteries as a kind of window into the mid-century, but, you know, one with angled views. So depending on how you look, you can find histories of American art and architecture or histories of war and combat. But when you look further, you might also have some insight into French and European war trauma especially in Normandy, Um, and even further, you may find some tangled politics of art patronage and culture wars about artistic style that circle back to debates 
over how to best communicate memory of war. So the window is both, you know, bird's eye view, uh, but also expansive. And there's a lot to absorb from these war cemeteries and studying them and understanding them. So from a from a scholarly point of view, then as an as an academic, how do you how do you get started when you're when you're thinking about uh, war memorialization and the role cemeteries play? Like, what would be your entry point uh, in? Uh, well, as an art historian, I always look at the object, and so the entry point in is to just you know let my eyes absorb and look and see and. Because the war cemeteries were planned as a, a large project, so with, with disparate parts, with um, you know sculpture as well as headstones, as well as monuments, as well as landscape architecture. So those are the, your individual components of the recipe, so to speak. But then there's this whole bigger idea that they feed into, which is to honor and remember American war dead. Um, so depending on kind of what catches your eye first, <laughs> that's how mm-hmm. you can approach to these war cemeteries. And most non-academics, you know, most people encounter these spaces through um, the headstones. The first thing that they see is, is what I think of as a landscape of death, um, just endless rows of war graves. And it's a very impressive view. It's it's one of the most moving experiences, you know, a person can have is to walk into these American war cemeteries and sites and just have that overwhelming um, vision before them of, of how mm-hmm. many lives were lost during war. So yeah, I, 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 yeah. I think that that certainly speaks, you know, to, to my experience visiting visiting different places because the they're so order, like they're so orderly, and they're all lined up, and they're, um, yeah, and they they just they stretch for so far in so many, so many directions. It's it does seem to me to be this sort of dominant feature in some ways. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned you mentioned other aspects, right, of sculpture, and um, you know, there's often like there might be maps, and there's all sorts of all sorts of other things. Can you talk a little bit about why why those other why those other elements mm-hmm. are there? They um, really are part of what in art history we think of as the beaux arts. Um, the beaux arts French term for that's you know, a new word. I, I I try to learn something every day, and like there, it's happened. It's spelled B E A U X, and then the new word, the next word is R R A R T S. So the Beaux-Arts is a 19th century school of thinking developed in Paris of how to build spaces, so big works of architecture, including sculpture and including landscape design. So the components were knit together as the pieces of the whole. And the, the cemeteries emerge from this line of training if you see, if you study who the architects of these individual sites were, all of them were trained in this way, in the Beaux-Arts mm. training. So they're not going to just, you know, put out a cemetery and grid them together, you know, and put, you know, a marker on each grave. 
Instead, they're going to construct a whole system underground, you know, into which a six foot headstone is then rigidly placed into. And that's why those rows are so rigid, because they have a system of architecture underneath the ground that holds them straight. They're also going to consider, you know, the ways in which the rows meet up, not only in straight lines, but in circles almost and sweeping Mm -hmm. diagonals. And also they're going to consider the main memorial and how that speaks back and forth to sculptures, funerary sculptures. And so the architecture and sculpture hand in hand work together, how it all works together. Yep. So you said they're all sort of trained in this, in, in this school. Um, Can you tell us a little more about who, like who are, who's making these plans for (laughs) American cemeteries overseas? They were, the very close-knit group of men, mostly male architects, um, that emerged out of Penn, the University of Pennsylvania School of Architecture, um, and were taught by a leading architect named Paul Cray. And um, also, he was French, so he trained in Paris, right? So there's a bit of a direct line of um, a very interrelated group and they were part of the same kinds of uh, clubs, like the National Sculpture Society um, in New York, the Century Club in New York. They were part of a group that, um, to borrow a phrase, you know, sort of this good old boys club, if you will. And it was hard to get this job, actually. And so this is where, you, you, you know, if you dig into the, the history of the American War Cemeteries um, and see who they were hiring, then you can start to see how certain types of style was preferred over others. And so certain architects got the job over others. And all of this, of course, was um, organized by the American Battle Monuments Commission the ABMC, which is in existence to this day. And that's the smallest agency of the executive branch of the federal government. So it's, it's the United States government that's actually, you know, providing the financial support, our taxpayers' dollars, our taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, the, and the American Battle Monuments Commission is then the people who constitute it are making choices about who to hire as the architects, yep. who to hire as the planners, which then results in these, like in the manifestation of specific ideas and specific like ways of thinking in the, in the real, in the real world. But they weren't going to hire just anybody. That's the catch. Mm -hmm. They, they needed to feel really confident that someone wasn't going to be too daring, you know, for the mid century (laughs) and go abstract, uh, you know, God forbid, Um, So they wanted to make sure it was a figurative kind of sculptor. Mm -hmm. So they have, they have, they themselves have ideas about what war cemeteries and war memorials should be. Yeah. And then go and find the people who can execute that, that sort of idea and that vision. Um, When were, when were the American war cemeteries, uh, especially in in Europe, we were talking about mid-century, are they all built at about the same time? Oddly enough, yes, in a weird way, um, because world, so the war cemeteries overseas began after World War One, 
so the ABMC, you know, becomes a group and um, is activated in 1924. And um, this is, you know, some years after <laughs> World War One ends. So there, it took some pivoting and some organizing to figure out, you know, the best approach to creating war cemeteries for the United States in Europe. Um, but they finally did. And so they started to, to activate the U.S. approach to war memory um, in 1924. But it, these sites actually didn't get constructed until 1936. So 1924, 1936. And then, of course, World War II happens. And by this time around, the ABMC had figured a lot of things out. And so they were able to move more quickly after the war. But the war cemeteries designs didn't start until 1948. And then the construction didn't actually start until 1952. And it was completed by 1956. So you're looking at a you know, cemeteries that were conceived in the late 40s, um, mm-hmm. you know, or in the late 20s uh, and early 30s. And when I talk about the mid-century, uh, that's what I'm referring to. And so the two groups, the World War One cemeteries and the World War II cemeteries are very similar, actually, if you, if you break them down to design, because they were okay. made basically in the same period. At the same, at, at roughly the same time. Right. So that's, here comes one of the random questions that just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I th- we often think of burial and an interment, right, as happening close to death, right, right, where people are are buried soon after they after they die. Here we obviously have a big gap of of years, yes, between the the battle and the combat that takes place, soldiers dying. And the construction of these cemeteries and the, the burial sites and memorials, what what happens in the in the interim between, say, a war and the dedication or the you know finalization of of the cemetery? I can only really speak to these two specific cases, so the World Wars, um, and what happens is that the the American Graves Registration Service or the quartermaster came through and of course buried the dead, not only American dead, um, but also the the enemy, that of the enemy. So many times you'll find in the archival sources, you know, uh, photographs, aerial photographs of the German war cemetery and the American war cemetery, and they're separated by, you know, 200 feet. And so the fallen soldier is properly taken care of and buried and identified. And, and that is very, very well tracked. The AGRS and quartermaster, you know, had this incredible system that they had been working on since the civil war um, to do that. So that system had been well perfected by the world wars. What was new and different was this design, this high design of, you know, very articulate spaces and that um, took time. And so while these sites were being planned, you know, to uh, make room for the appropriate landscape designs, so things had to be, you know, land had to be graded according to a certain d- 
degree, you know, for drainage, all these <laughs> technical concerns that right. you don't even realize go into this. Um, but you can imagine how bad it would be if, if things were to flood, say, in a cemetery. So it took years to do that. And in some cases, the, the temporary cemeteries were um, evacuated of the bodies. And then those, those coffins, which were sealed and airtight you know, to U.S. military standards, they remained above ground, covered by black tarp for years. And that was something that the U.S. You know, government was very sensitive about and did not want to publish photographs of, you know, these coffins that were stacked above the ground. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to think about the different purposes of the of graves registration, of immediate burial, of the, you know, the needs of, of families and all sorts of things. And then the impact that that photographs of, of coffins lined up would have and the, the difference between that and rows of headstones, right? Like that's a, that's yes. a pretty different, a pretty different image and a very different impact. What was interesting for me in my research, uh, it was to also look at the French experience of the temporary cemeteries. And so I did a deeper dive in France um, in my research um, because I had to limit, you know, these cemeteries in some way to make it a little bit more feasible as a project. <laughs> so I just focused on the ones in France um, you know, which were still 14 of them from World War One and World War Two, And what came, came across in a very striking way was how invested the Norman French especially were in caretaking of the graves of the American war cemeteries while they were still temporary cemeteries. So there's actually, you know, there's only six, if you count the um, permanent cemetery outside of Paris um, in Suresnes. Um, there was only six permanent cemeteries that we know today from World War II that it's in France. But originally there were, you know, 32 sites. Um, and so you can imagine all these little French villages that have these, mm. these temporary American war cemeteries. And this is still during the era when travel and tourism hadn't yet like revived in France. It was like a war-torn country. So the, the French were, I think, believe, and I argue that they were channeling some of their own war trauma through the caretaking of these American graves. Because if you think about it, often the French families in an area had lost their own person, but they didn't have a grave to tend to. Mm -hmm. So a so lot of people have disappeared. It's almost by proxy or yes, something. Exactly. And I found yeah, that so moving when I, when I kind of put that together. I thought that was a really important part of the war cemetery's history. Mm -hmm. And I think you can you can still you can still sort of feel that today. I had the I had the privilege of being in Normandy at the 70th anniversary, um, and you can you can that connection between France and the United States is it's it's palpable, right? As you as you sort of come across the the anniversaries of of D Day and some other things, um, and the 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 pride with which the cemeteries are sort of like understood and the place that the place that they have there uh, still seems still seems pretty pretty clear yeah I wonder if you have some thoughts about what we learn about the United States um, when we look at the way the U.S. has 
you know, approached the question of memorializing its war dead, especially especially in the two world wars that happen overseas, uh, where the the casualties are are, you know, for for the for the Americans are quite high, not as high as other European combatants, of course. Um, but these are these are fallen soldiers who, and sailors and marines and airmen who don't who don't come home, right? Right. What do we learn about the about the United States uh, from looking at these at these places? Well, you know, I thought about this. Um, I would say three things, you know, come to mind immediately. One is that the U.S. is a wealth, a very wealthy nation. No other country, you know, was able to do this kind of in-depth um, design and uh, move you know, fallen soldiers around to the extent that we did in order to create these permanent designs. And, um, you know, the designs are are made out of, um, the art and architecture is often made out of very high quality materials like marble. So, um, and, you know, artists were hired. And this is the opportunity of a lifetime for them. They were paid very well. So that's one thing that we learned from these cemeteries, especially if you compare them to other nations from these world wars, um, the cemeteries of their nations. So for example, Germany made its permanent war cemeteries in the 1960s after raising private funds because they were, you know, disbarred, they were not allowed to spend national money, um, federal money to pay for these war cemeteries because it might be construed as a form of nationalism. And that's, it's it's all a very interesting long story. And we can return to that if you would like. Um, the second thing that I, I wanted to bring up about what we learn about the United States is that in the mid-century, um, the U.S. American mid-century placed a value on collective group identity rather than that of the individual. And then the third thing, and we can go back to that too, and the third thing is that the U.S. mastered a cultural diplomacy in a way that no other country could and, and really de- deployed the cultural diplomacy through cemeteries, through these war cemeteries, through the messaging. So, for example, after World War I, you know, the demonstration of, hey, we were here too. Oh, and by the way, you know, we're willing to sacrifice I think there, that's the sort of secondary message behind that. Um, and the same message is underscores the World War II cemeteries that, hey, you know, should you decide to turn communist, you know, we're willing to die for what we believe in um, by demonstration. It's a permanent marker in some ways of, of the cost that, that people have paid. Um, the cost that they paid, but also the what we're willing to pay. Like, mm-hmm. It's a little bit of an implied um, statement of power. Sure, sure. You started the podcast by saying, as an art historian, you look first at the objects. Um, is there a is there a specific object that you might tell us about in in a little bit more detail that you think is particularly illustrative of either one of those three points or something else that you'd like to to like leave with our listeners? Sure. I mean, I think everyone can picture the headstone, right? So the headstone is either in the shape of the Latin cross or of the Star of David. And 
on the headstone, the information that the U.S. American government chose to display is the name of the soldier, the state from which he, or if it's a woman, it's a nurse, she registered to be, you know, enroll in military service. And the actual branch and rank that that person served in. So if you think, okay, so there's a, there's a lot of information identifying this person. There's also the date of death. So if you understand the war and the conflict, you know, say if this person died in, you know, June 6, 1944, you're like, oh, okay, that's D-Day. Get it. The, by contrast, the Commonwealth, so the British, you know, affiliated cemeteries, they have the age upon death as well, and a personal kind of inscription of 60 mm -hmm. letters that the families or the next of kin was allowed to personalize their headstone. And they also have different religions that are allowed to be, you know, depicted or not depicted. <laughs> you know, if you just want to go with like the maple leaf, that's that was the family's choice. You didn't have to have um, a Latin cross engraved in this rounded tombstone, headstone. But if you think in your mind, in your mind's eye, if you can picture the American headstone versus these other countries' headstones, it's very clear that the U.S. was emphasizing a collective group. There's not enough information on that individual's headstone to really tell you much about the individual. But what you do know is, oh, like this person fought in this battle. If, if you're a good enough military historian to know that um, and place that, and most people aren't. So the date of death doesn't really help a lot of people. <laughs> um, or, you know, like the branch and like, oh, you know, like if he was a signals officer, you know, you can think about like telephones and communications, maybe spying, I don't know. Um, so there's a lot of information that's kind of murky, right? For today's 21st century, at least, that viewer. But by contrast, if you go to these Commonwealth cemeteries, you're very moved by reading the inscription on a 19-year-old's headstone that's like, we love you, we miss right. you forever in our hearts. Love mom, dad, and sister. You're like, oh my God, this kid. You know, he was like that's yeah, that's about that's about a personal sort of connection to to family and to country. Right. Whereas the American the information on the American headstone is all is all tied to the state. It's all tied to the state. Right? And it's very so for for today, we're much more interested in to, it kind of just reveals too like what the focus was in the mid-century versus the focus today. Mm -hmm. And the ABNC has done a lot of work to try to invoke the individual behind that gravestone. Um, so it shows that how the interests have shifted. Uh, but you know, I, I really find it um, too bad <laughs> that we didn't have those inscriptions. And actually, uh, you know. For those of you who are familiar with the cemeteries and have been to the World War I cemeteries in like Suran or Wazan or Ain Marne, they occasionally you will come across a headstone with, with an inscription at the back of the headstone. And so for about like a period of four months, the ABMC was allowing families um, to engrave inscriptions for American fallen soldiers. But mm. the but there were under conditions, right? So the families had to pay for it. So not all families could afford it. And the other weird thing is that the families were choosing inscriptions that 
designated, assigned them a sense of class. So they would either, you know, quote scripture from somebody, you know, famous at the time that signaled a, a, a sort of a waspy highbrow background, right? Or the other weird thing that they did was designate that the soldier had died in combat, which is a big, you know, mm-hmm. designation for World War One. Like, hey, my my kid didn't die from the flu. <laughs> like, he died in combat, killed in action. So that, of course, establishes a sense a marker of, of status. Uh, and, yeah, hierarchy of yeah, death for sure. You've talked a couple in a couple of places about things like religion or gender, which are categories that permeate our lives but they also tell us complicated things about the times and places that we that we live in how do things like race or religion or gender or class and politics you know come into come into play in these in these spaces well what's kind of two things one is that race and gender and especially race you know for the time they don't that doesn't come into play and that's thanks to John J. Pershing, who was the secretary of the ABMC, you know, after World War One, and he was the real mastermind of um, the equality across the board. That you see, you know, officers are not separated, and nor are the cemeteries segregated according to race. Um, women are less in the picture. I mean, they're also not segregated according to gender. So that's, you know, but there weren't that many of them um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, the families were the ones that chose to um, let their their loved one remain in Europe. So many of those women were actually brought back. Um, The other thing about religion is, and this gets super complicated, but one of the things that I noticed is that in 1924, the Jewish, uh, there was a, a group of Jewish Americans who organized and um, lobbied Congress to include in the headstone design the Star of David. And that demonstrates how well organized that group was at that time. And you, you don't see any other religion acknowledged except for Christianity and uh, Jewish religions in the war cemeteries. So again, that kind of speaks to who had power in society at the time. But Native Americans or um, people of other faiths besides Christianity, they are all buried under a Latin cross. And I find Mm -hmm. that problematic today. In the mid-century, it wasn't. But that's one of the things that I think the ABMC is going to have to really address, Um, especially if, you know, it's it's Japanese-American, you know, group from Hawaii that's buried in AP now. Uh, I, I would imagine that those families are uncomfortable with that grave marker, but I can't speak mm-hmm. for them, but I would imagine that that kind of thing comes up. And I, and it's, it's a place where we see significant change over, over time, like the, the religious markers on, on in national cemeteries are much more expansive now than they than they were at mid-century um but you know what's the what's the obligation to to go back and rectify or change decisions that were made in a specific time in a specific place uh yeah so i think it's a, i think it's a, a really interesting uh, a really interesting question um and i am 
I am really sad to say that we are we're all out of time. Time always goes so quickly when I'm when I'm talking to interesting people about interesting things. Um, so as today's podcast comes to a close, I would like to thank uh, Dr. Kate Clark LeMay once again for joining us today. Uh, and I'd like to thank all of our listeners out there as well. Please send us your comments on the podcast uh, on this one or others. And we'd also love to hear your suggestions or ideas for future topics as well. We're always interested in hearing from you. If you've not already done so, I hope you'll subscribe to War Room via our website, which will put updates and content directly in your inbox. And you can also subscribe to A Better Piece on the podcatcher of your choice. And if you would uh, rate and review the podcast, that will certainly help other people find us as well. We'll look forward to having you all again with us soon. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Jackie Witt. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.